thanks worship team. It's, oh, we could have just stayed in worship for longer, I think, today. And we will worship a little more before we close today. Uh, if you have your Bible, join me in Acts chapter 8. And we are uh, going to take some time, and we're going to go through a lot of scripture this morning. So Acts chapter 8 will be kind of our springboard, and then there's a whole bunch of others that we want to talk about this morning. Uh, I hope everyone had a great Christmas. I know Christmas was a little different this year, but uh, I hope it didn't take away from your worship. I hope it didn't take away from enjoying family as you can enjoy family. What my wife and I found as we navigated Christmas this year was that we did scale down lots of things, and there were things that we didn't do, and there were certain moments of uh, sadness in December where we were missing some stuff. There were moments, uh, honestly, that were kind of boring uh, when stuff slowed down so much. And then there was just lots of good moments with the family and lots of great moments of worship and lots of great moments celebrating Jesus. And, you know, we had this theory as December was unfolding. We said, you know, the, the sad part is we are canceling some events and we're missing some things. Uh, the good news is we're going to lose weight this December, right? We're going to actually do better because we're not doing all of these dinners and we're not doing all of those things, it didn't work out even a little bit because we found ourselves at home and we'd be saying, oh man, tonight was supposed to be that thing. Well, why don't we just order food? Because we were going to eat junky that night anyway. And if we order food, we're supporting a local business. So we're basically just doing our civic duty. And so we found ourselves in a place where we were still enjoying just as much food as we normally would have. And so our weight loss technique didn't work out. Um, but as we start the new year, we sent a letter out uh, to our church, just a, a Christmas letter, kind of wrapping out the year. And one of the things that we said in that letter was, uh, hey, as we come into 2021, can we all agree we're not going to talk about COVID 24-7? And I don't just mean COVID, but all the effects, lockdown, government's mass, like for so much of 2020, uh, it just dominated everything. And, and we took some time as a church to talk about it, and, and we've had uh, prayer times about it, and it just seems like uh, so much of our small talk became about how are you navigating 2020 and all the challenges. And we all, I think, probably reached a point where we're just like, all right, I'm just sick of talking about it. I'm just done. Uh, we've talked about it all the time. And so one of the things we really want to do as a staff is say in 2021, let's not let that dominate the conversation. Uh, of course, if you need to talk about it, we're here to talk about it. And there's going to be times we need to do that. There's going to be times we talk about it as a church, I am sure. But we really don't want to let it just dominate everything. And at the very beginning of this, I remember last March saying, you know what, I'm not ever going to talk about COVID from this pulpit. I'm just not ever going to do that. Only Jesus, only the gospel. And that just unfortunately proved to be a bit naive, just partly because it ended up being a lot longer than we thought. Uh, but we did need to talk about it at times. We did need to wrestle through it together. It was something that was affecting all of us. Um, so we're going to talk about it this morning. Woohoo! Who's ready? And I really want this to be the last time we talk about it for a while. But we, I do want to take some time this morning uh, to talk about just where we find ourselves as we start off the year. Uh, we've gone back into gray zone, into lockdown, and we find ourselves in that place. And we have not taken time yet uh, as a leadership to talk to you as the church and just say, here's why we're doing what we're doing. Here's how we're going to navigate it. There are some churches in our area that have elected to stay open and, and defy the lockdown. And some of those places have been charged. And we want to talk about that a little bit and just how are we kind of navigating that together. But I really would like this to be the last time. So if you are here this morning, and watching online and you're saying, I don't want to hear more about uh, the stupid virus and all the effects of it, I'm with you one million percent. We do think it's important to just do this once just to catch everybody up and get us all on the same page and then we're going to move forward to other things. So starting in two weeks, we're going to start a new series on the book of Revelation. We're going to start in chapter one, verse one, and we're just going to start marching through it and I don't have a plan exactly for how long, but we're just going to get going. Uh, everybody's favorite crazy, mysterious, mystical, challenging book of the Bible, and we're just going to dig really deep into it. And the book of Revelation is not primarily, I don't think, the emphasis is supposed to be about end times or plagues or uh, monsters or the devil. Revelation 1 starts with, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a book about Jesus. And so we are going to dig into Jesus Christ as he reveals himself through the book of Revelation. That'll start in a couple of weeks. 
So we find ourselves as a church this morning uh, scattered again. We are not all together in one room. It's not my favorite way to do church. Uh, I'm happy this time we're allowed to have 10 in a room because Xavier and I did this for a long time where it was just him and me in an empty room. And so all of the 10 people in the room are getting uncomfortable amounts of eye contact from me this morning because you're the only ones I can look at. And so when we did this before, uh, Xavier and I taped pictures all over the pews, all of the Meadowbrook family pictures we taped everywhere just so I could have things to look at and feel like there was family here with me while I was preaching. Here, I get a few extra people in the room, which is really good. Um, but we find ourselves in lockdown again. We've gotten through this once. We will get through it again. Uh, we find ourselves in a place where we're not able to gather together. And, uh, and again, there are some churches that are defying that, and they have gone in a different direction. They are choosing to stay open. There are some of those places that have been charged. And I'm not here today to pass judgment on anybody. I'm not here to, uh, to speak to those churches at all. Every church is wrestling through this and discerning it on their own. I'm not a part of those meetings or those conversations, and I'm not responsible for any other church. I'm responsible for Meadowbrook Church. And so this is a message for Meadowbrook Church. Um, and we need to be praying for all churches, some of those churches where uh, there have been charges and a worst case scenario there might even be jail time on the table and so uh, we need to be praying for sure because even if we don't agree with what they're doing uh, and I don't and even if we don't agree with their tactics which I don't I respectfully disagree those are still brothers and sisters in the Lord they are still preachers of the gospel they are still people that we're going to spend eternity with and none of us want to see any of our brothers and sisters uh, getting hammered with fines or in jail and so we are praying for all of them uh, even in disagreement because we can do that. Even in disagreement, we love one another. Even in disagreement, we say the gospel that unites us and the Christ that we adore is so much more important than the things that we disagree on. And so we can say, I respectfully disagree, but I still love you and I'm praying for you and I'm rooting for God's best in your life and, and calling upon God to be merciful uh, in this scenario, hoping that judges and others will be merciful as well. So as we share this morning, this is where we're at right now. And the situation is fluid, as much of 2020 was. As things change, perhaps, as evidence changes, our church's position might change. But this is where we are at as of now and how we have wrestled through this. And we have taken a lot of time, even in sort of summertime, when things were somewhat back to normal. And in church life, we were able to get somewhat back to normal. Back then, we were talking about, okay, well, if a second wave comes, if lockdown comes again, what are we going to do? How are we going to navigate that? So we as a staff have had quite a while to start to get our heads around this, and we just want to walk with you guys now and catch you up to where we have been through conversations with the staff, the MMT, and the board, and get you where we're at. So I titled the sermon today, When Church Tours Temporarily Close. Uh, titles are hard and aren't really that important. Other ones I kicked around were an argument for compliance. Why are we uh, doing what the government is saying right now? Finding redemption in the struggle. Why we're not worried about persecution, at least not yet. Uh, we're going to cover all of these things today. And in the midst of all of this right now, in the discussions about uh, church and what's essential and what's not and religious rights and everything, uh, we also are acknowledging there is a virus that's real. And I know we're sick of hearing about it, and I have no doubt that uh, the media has helped make this situation much more uh, terrifying than it needs to be. Uh, I have no doubt there are things we are going to look back on and say, well, maybe that was overkill, and maybe we didn't need to do that, or that didn't turn out to be that important, but we're not there yet. And I know we're all sick of hearing about it. I fully believe, you know, the idea that 99% of us, if we catch the virus, are going to be fine. Uh, and yet, we do have this reality that we are facing. And so we have friends in town, and their mom caught the virus. And uh, when we were talking to them, they said, oh, they airlifted her to Sarnia. Because uh, Windsor is full, and Leamington is full, and they're not taking any more. So she got airlifted to Sarnia. And we went, oh, okay, that doesn't sound great. Uh, so I spoke with a member of our church who works in the ICU at the Chatham Hospital, and so he's face-to-face -face with this stuff all the time. He says, we've been taking the overflow from Windsor and Leamington for a while. We're taking five, six patients a day, but now we're getting full. So overflow's going to Sarnia and London, and they're getting full. And so there is a reality there, and I know we can say government is exaggerating, or maybe the media is exaggerating, or whatever, but... Uh, but full hospitals are hard to argue with, right? That's not interpretation. That's just geography. There's so many beds, and when they're full, they're full. And so we want to be wise in all of that, and there's just such a, 
a crazy tightrope we all have to walk in this season. We don't want to walk in fear on the other extreme. We don't want to walk in foolishness. Somewhere between fear and foolishness is faith and wisdom. And that's the sweet spot that we've been striving for as we go throughout all of this. I imagine, I'm not saying this to be a bummer, I imagine the next few months are going to be challenging. Uh, in this fight. And I also imagine we will see the tide turn in that in 2021, but we're not there yet. And so we're going to look at our text now. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8. And right before Acts chapter 8 is the story of Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. And Stephen uh, is arrested. He's brought before the authorities. Uh, Acts 6 through 7 tells his story and his speech to the authorities and uh, his way of proclaiming the gospel. And as he proclaims the gospel, he refuses to budge on his declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, he is stoned to death, and he is the first Christian to die for the sake of the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 6 and 7, it ends with Stephen dying, and then we'll head into Acts chapter 8. So, Stephen has been killed, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing him. That's Saul who will become the Apostle Paul. Saul was there. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And I will encourage you, we'll stop there, but if you keep reading through Acts chapter 8, you're going to see more of Philip's adventures, and the book of Acts starts to branch out at that point to different things that God is doing through different people in different parts of the world. And I brought that one story, again, we're not going to dig into that particular text too much today, um, partly to say, number one, this is what persecution looks like. Persecution comes against us when, because of our proclamation of Jesus, because of the things that we believe, because of what we are teaching, we are, are met with a negative effect from authorities or from other people. And so persecution is real. I don't believe we are in a time of persecution right now in this particular season. I don't believe the church is being closed down is a persecution, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. But in the book of Acts, there's lots of persecution that happens. And uh, a little earlier in the book of Acts, there are times where the apostles are told, stop talking about Jesus. And they say, well, no, we're going to go in the temple and talk about Jesus. And then there's times like this one where when persecution comes, they don't take a stand. They're not complaining about their rights. They actually say, we're going to leave and we're going to figure out a new way to do church as we go. And so context is important, and that really is the big question that every church has been struggling with in this season, is that is this the time to take a stand, or is this the time to adapt? Is this the time to figure out a new way to do this? Is this the time for us to learn how to be the church in a different way for a little while? And unfortunately for all of us, there's not like a crystal clear New Testament passage that talks about what the Christ follower is supposed to do in a time of plague or virus or pandemic. There's not like a verse that says, here's how the book of Acts handled it when there was an outbreak of whatever in this city. It's just not there. And so there's not a lot for us to lean on in terms of really black and white verses like that. And so we have to infer a lot of things from other scriptures. We got to look at the word and pull things out, wrestle with both sides, put it together. And so what I like about this particular story is that even in the face of persecution, one of the things we know from the book of Acts earlier is that they would gather together, all together at the temple for the apostles' teaching. They would also gather together in people's homes for apparently more intimate teaching and fellowship time and sharing of communion and that kind of thing. And so in this moment, the New Testament church loses the way they do church in Jerusalem. Uh, all of a sudden, it's not safe to gather at the temple anymore. All of a sudden, you're getting pulled out of your house churches, and there's persecution that is coming. So their favorite way of doing church, and the only way that they know how to do church, gets pulled out from under them all of a sudden. And many of them have to run away and run for their lives. And so uh, that also teaches me that it's not wrong to take precautions to preserve life, just because we're people of faith. 
Uh, it is okay to, to do what we can to steward our lives well, and that's what these ones do as they leave. And as we'll see, this is also something that God is actually working out in his church. So the big question that is being uh, wrestled with now is, is this persecution or not? And so in this story, the church does get persecuted, and then it begins to spread. Is that what's happening to us right now? Is this persecution? Is this unjust? Are we being treated unfairly? In my opinion, the answer is no. And I should say, as I go through this whole message today, I feel very much at peace about where we've landed as a church. Um, I don't love the season by any means. I wish we could all be together, but I feel very much at peace in where we're at and, and how we are going to figure this out together. Uh, so is this persecution? I don't think it is, because there is nothing where Christ followers are being singled out because of their faith. Uh, the same things that are being applied to churches right now are being applied to almost everybody in society. And so uh, if we were being punished because of our faith, because of what we're teaching, because of what we believe, by definition, that would be persecution. If we were the only ones shut down and other places that were similar to us were allowed to be open, then you could certainly make the argument that this is unfair. But everything that is similar to us, where you gather together in a room and you sit all together and you breathe the same air, everything like that is shut down in Ontario right now. Restaurants are shut down, bars are shut down, schools right now are shut down, casinos are shut down, movie theaters are shut down. Everything that is similar to what we do on a Sunday morning, uh, all of those types of gatherings are all similarly shut down. And so I don't think you can argue that we are being treated any different than anybody else. I was talking to someone before Christmas and uh, they had a friend who was a board member of a church in town. Their church was wrestling through this stuff, as everybody is in churches right now in Ontario. And their church was, I think, leaning towards staying open, and this board member didn't think that they should. And his point was, if we really feel like this is unjust, if we feel like churches are being treated unfairly, then we should take a stand. If we really do believe that, absolutely we should take a stand. But, he said, if we're going to take that stand, then we are taking that stand until they either allow us to reopen or until the church goes bankrupt or until all of us are in jail. Like, if we really believe that it's unjust, then yes, we have a moral duty to stand up to injustice. But if that is the stand we're going to take, then we don't get just to do it once or twice and then give up and say, all right, well, we'll just do it online for now. Like, if we're going all in, we're going all in. And I haven't stopped thinking about that position. I agree with it. I think it's very true. If we truly believe that injustice is happening, we do have an obligation to stand up to it. But if we really do believe that it is unjust, then we are standing up to it until the injustice goes away. And if that means we bankrupt the church and all of us end up in jail, so be it. And I just don't believe that this is the hill for us to die on in that right now because I don't see the evidence that it's persecution and I don't see the evidence that it is unfair. Everyone is being asked to sacrifice right now. We could debate all day whether that is a justified thing in terms of is it the best way to do it? Is there a better way to do it? Um, and, and we can have those conversations for sure. But at the moment, I look at everything and I say uh, we are all as a culture being asked to give up some things right now. And one of the things we're all being asked to give up is our gatherings, and so that is just where we are at. And what we are seeing, we'll see what happens locally. Uh, out west, churches got shut down sooner, and there have been lawsuits. The lawsuits have all been lost, and a lot of those churches that took strong stands for a weekend or two uh, have all just gone online at this point, and they have figured out a way. And I go, man, if you want to fight these things, and if you want to spend tens of thousands of dollars of your tithe money, and uh, you know, money that's not going to help the poor, that's not going to, uh, to serve missions and things things like that, if we all as a group want to risk you know, charges and permanent criminal records and jail times. If I, as a pastor, am going to ask you to do that and you, my flock, who I love, uh, if I'm going to put you in the crosshairs of the government, it's going to have to be something we feel very, very passionately about. We're really going to have to believe that this is a hill that we are willing to die on. And, and we just don't believe right now in a time of the virus, in the season that we're in, when everyone is being asked the same thing, we just don't believe that this is a hill for us to die on. On right now. The phrase, the headline, the things that people are sharing right now is that the government is closing down churches. And we did a series back in the fall called Truth Seekers, and one of the things we talked about was, was just 
you know, when we're looking for truth and trying to discern truth, sometimes the most dangerous thing isn't the lie. It's kind of the half-truth or the incomplete truth. And so the phrase gets shared, the government's closing down churches. The government has no right to say anything about religion. The government has no right to tell churches what to do. And a phrase like that, I mean, it, it angers up the blood, right? Like it sounds scary. It sounds oppressive. It sounds like it's something that we should be alarmed about. And yet, even though there is truth there, it's not really the complete truth, right? That's a very limited view of what is going on. The government is closing down churches. Yes, that's happening. Here's what I think is a better, more complete view of the truth. The government is temporarily suspending all public gatherings, which includes our Sunday morning gatherings. So it's not that the church is being hammered on this. It's not that we are closed and everyone else is open. If we were in a situation where the casinos were open and the restaurants were open and the bars were open and we had to be closed, then we'd probably be approaching this from a very different perspective. But we're in a season right now where we're not supposed to be gathering in our homes. We're not supposed to be gathering in the theaters. We're not supposed to be gathering in the bars and the restaurants. We are all under the same thing. And so from a purely public health point of view, putting aside our passion for the church for a moment, from a purely public health point of view, uh, like I get, I get it. I get in a time of virus when we're not totally sure how it spreads and when, when it is escalating in our area, when our hospitals are full, I, I get why a public church gathering is higher risk than, than say, going to Walmart or going to the grocery store. Um, at the grocery store, we're not all sitting packed in the room for an hour and a half. We're not singing. We're not uh, engaging in that level of contact with one another. If I have COVID at the grocery store, you and I are going to pass each other for 30 seconds. Like, it's not prolonged. So purely from a public health standpoint, I get it. Uh, I don't love that we're closed down, obviously, but I understand it. And I think it's not comparable to the grocery store or to Walmart. And that's where a lot of the outrage is coming from, is why is Walmart open and we are closed? And it's like, well, in Walmart, you don't go sit in a room with people and breathe in that same air. And, and you know, you don't just have the passing, fleeting contacts with one another. Uh, why is the liquor store open and the church is closed? It's like, well, again, you go into the liquor store for a few minutes and you come out. You're not sitting there. If there was a way that we got alcohol where you sat in the room for a long time and breathed in the same air, then that should be closed as well. And we do have those things. They're called bars, and bars are closed right now. And for all of the outrage of, you know, well, the culture's saying the liquor store is more important than the church, and, and, you know, why is that the case? And my response to that is, of course they feel that way. Of course an unsaved culture feels that way. It's not good and it's not right, but of course they feel that way. Part of our job as the church is to introduce people to Jesus so that they see Jesus is the best thing in life, that he is the best way to live. We can't get angry at the unsaved world for acting like the unsaved world. Scripture says that we come to Jesus as the blinders are taken off, as the Holy Spirit reveals him to us. You can't get mad at someone who hasn't had the Holy Spirit reveal Jesus to them for not knowing who Jesus is. That's where we pray, and that's where we share, and that's where we preach the gospel. And so we understand. We should have a basic understanding. We can't go, people who don't follow Christ aren't following Christ. And it's like, right, because they need to meet him first. That's our job. And so I, I just, when I see the outrage in different areas, I'm just not able to kind of match that outrage. Um, I don't think liquor is more important than Jesus, but uh, you know that's where the culture's at. We have work to do. That's part of our job, is to demonstrate that Jesus is the most important thing about life. And so we just need to, I think, just dial down the outrage. Everything about the internet, we talked about this in the fall, everything about the internet is designed to stir up outrage. And we're in this time where it's like you prove how moral you are by how outraged you get at things. And everything is just cancel everybody who disagrees agrees with me, and I think we as Christ followers are called to be different than that. Here are some things about the church during COVID. Here are some things that the government has done for us in this time. In the first wave, back starting in March, churches reopened much earlier than most other gatherings. We were open well before restaurants, before malls, before schools. They let us reopen. Doug Ford stood up and said, our faith is important, so churches, you can open. Now, it was so early, we were shocked. We were caught off guard, and we had to scramble to get 
things going. So we were allowed to be open much earlier than most other gatherings, and certainly other gatherings similar to us, where you're sitting in a room for a long time together. When we were open, we enjoyed less restrictions than most businesses and organizations. We had suggestions that they wanted us to do. They weren't making us do any of them. So we enjoyed less restrictions than a lot of places. In the second wave, we kept our doors open longer than similar gatherings. In Red Zone, we were still allowed to be open to our summer levels in a time when movie theaters were shut down, restaurants were allowed to have 10 people in the building, period. And so they let us stay open much longer and enjoy more freedom than a lot of other places. And even now in Gray Zone, churches can gather in groups of 10, which lots of other places can't. You can't gather as 10 in your house right now. Restaurants can't have 10 in there. We can have 10. We can gather as groups of 10 for religious reasons. So I just find it really hard to argue that we are hard done by in this time. We have been given extra privileges, if anything else. We are Canadian. We've had more privileges than hockey during COVID. We have had more privileges than sports venues. We've had more privileges than restaurants. We have had a lot that has been given to us. It's not everything we want. It's not everything that would be our favorite or the way that we would like to do things. But I don't think you can deny that we have had some extra that a lot of other places haven't had. And so it's really hard to argue that we are being persecuted right now when everyone is in the same boat, and if anything, we are getting a little bit of extra. Now, listen, and I'm not saying this to be a bummer. I'm saying this from sincere conviction. I really do believe persecution will increase more and more in Canada. I really do believe that. I believe that we have seen a slow move towards that in recent decades. I think more and more it's going to get harder to hold to our, our biblical morality. I think it's going to be harder to hold to our view that Jesus is the only way. I don't mean harder in terms of we'll have a struggle. I just mean it's going to become less and less acceptable for us to say some of the things that we say and preach some of the things that we preach. And I just, I believe that that is escalating even as, but separate from COVID, but just in these years that we're living in, it is happening even now. And part of the reason my wife went back to work, it wasn't the main reason, but uh, was just looking at things. I've got 20, 30 years left in my career and us just going, yeah, I don't know if full-time pastor will be a viable career uh, 20, 30 years from now. I don't know if that's going to be possible. And so it'd be good for us to have a backup and have a plan there. It wasn't the main reason we went back, but that was part of the conversation. And so I really do believe persecution is coming. I know many other pastors feel the same way. Um, but what I think is happening now a little bit maybe is we're trying to kind of shoehorn this into that category of persecution because it doesn't feel good and we don't like what's happening. But I don't want to, you know, dishonor where persecution is legitimately happening around the world, where people are dying and being jailed because of their proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And I also think this can be a good opportunity for us to say, okay, so we this maybe isn't persecution, but what is it teaching us? What is it maybe preparing us for? What are we going to learn through this time? Because as, the, um, as we even look at where pastors are being charged right now, and that's just an awful, oh, like that's like a, just I don't agree with what they're doing, but it's still, to me, that's a brother. We're pastors together, right? We're preaching Jesus together. We're leading churches together. I'm never happy to see anything like that. But uh, again, they're not being charged because of their faith. They're being charged because of their gathering. If an atheist is going to force open a business that's not allowed to be open, they're going to get the exact same charge. If you have a party in your house right now, you're going to get the exact same charge. So I don't see the persecution argument. I just don't see it. And I, I don't love what's happening right now, but I don't believe churches are being treated uh, poorly or more poorly than anyone else in this time. And again, we can debate all day whether these things are necessary or not. But there's another side of this too, and admittedly, this is an unpolished thought. It's just something I've been kicking around for a little bit. We talked about this verse from uh, Philippians, this passage, a few weeks ago. Philippians 2, this is verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We call this the incarnation, right? God became flesh. God came down 
and walked among us. And Jesus gives up everything. He gives up the security of heaven, the adoration of angels, every blessing that comes by being God. Jesus comes and lives instead this humble, sorrowful, broken life among us. He enters into our suffering with us. He doesn't say, I shouldn't have to do that. He doesn't say, hey, I'm God's son and I'm special. He does the exact opposite. He lays it all down. And he suffers with us. We suffer because of our sin. We suffer because this is a broken world, which we have helped cause. We suffer justly in that sense because we are part of this broken, fallen creation and we have all contributed to that brokenness and that fallenness. Jesus carries none of that, comes and willingly enters into our suffering anyway and lives a life of perfect obedience to the Father and dies for our sins on the cross. Jesus comes and suffers with us. And so when we talk about living, we want to be a church that lives like this. We want to live incarnationally as well. We want to live in a way that we are being where people are and we are suffering with them and we are bearing their burdens and we are caring for them. And I'm struggling, and again, this is just a bit of an unpolished thought, but I'm just struggling with a view of the incarnation and a view of what it means to be the church where we say, we're not going to struggle or suffer the way everyone else is. Everyone else in the culture is going to live more sacrificially than we think the Christ followers should live. I struggle with that thinking. Everyone is being asked to give something up right now. Everybody in our culture is being asked to give something up. And I struggle with the thought that churches would say, yeah, we don't think we should suffer. You guys can all give stuff up. We're not going to sacrifice. As followers of Jesus who gave the greatest sacrifice, sacrifice is supposed to be part of what we're good at as Christ followers. We're supposed to be the ones who say, yes, out of my love for God, out of my love for neighbor, out of my love even for my enemy, I will lay whatever down. I will sacrifice for your sake. And so to be like Jesus and say, I can give up some things. I can lay my life down. I can give myself up for you. I'm not going to look to my own interests alone. I'm going to look to your interests as well. And with some of these lawsuits and things that have been happening, there's just a lot of talk from, from Christians about sort of my rights, our rights. And I haven't seen the lawsuit yet where Christians are trying to get small businesses reopened because they're also really struggling or where they're trying to get more stimulus money into the hands of the poorest among us because they're really struggling in all of this sacrifice. It's just all about us and our rights and our freedoms and what we get and what we want. And honestly, like, I would like us as a church to be advocating for small businesses. And we'll have some more information for that uh, in the weeks to come. But I would like us as a church to be standing up, as long as it can be done safely. It does bug me that mega corporations are open and ma and pa places are shut down right now. And if there's a way they can be open safely, I think they should be open safely. And so I would like us to be a voice for that as a church. I would like us to be a voice for the, the poorest among us and those who are struggling. It's not just about us and about our rights. Jesus put aside his interests and looked to the interests of others. And to be incarnational, in part, is to do that. And when the government says we're all being asked to sacrifice, then I don't think Christians should be saying, not us. doesn't apply to us. I think sacrifice is part of what we signed up for when we said we were going to follow after Jesus. So part of the conversation then as well becomes the role of the government and the role of the church. What's our response to our governing authorities? There are some who are saying the government should never have any say in what churches are doing ever. We don't actually believe that. None of us do. There's always been a little bit of overlap. There are charitable laws that we have to follow, and there's building codes that we have to honor. Government has always had at least a small place in giving some guidance and some boundaries for what churches can do. We can't just spend our money literally on whatever we want as a church. There are some rules in place, and the rules are in place for our protection so that you know when you give to the church that I'm not funding my private condo in Hawaii, right? There's things that are there that are meant to keep everybody safe. And so what is our response then to our governing authorities? When the government says, you can't meet for a little while, uh, how do we respond to that? What is the biblical way for us to approach that? And there's a few different verses that are getting a lot of play right now. The main one is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. 
Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now, some of you right away are running ahead and saying, no, we obey God, not man. And you're already, it's like a loop in your head. You're just running there. Just hold on. Just calm down. We will get there. Just bear with me for a moment. So the passage directly in context is ultimately about justice, that God has put the authorities in place for justice, to maintain law and maintain order. Society would be chaos if we all just said, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm only going to agree to things that I agree with, and I'm not going to do anything that I don't like. And if we all just literally did our own thing, it would be chaotic. So God has put authorities in place to maintain order. Interesting, and it gets skimmed over a lot. It says the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And a lot is made of the corruption and the evil and everything. And we always note when we read passages like this that in the time the New Testament is written, a lot of the authorities are very anti-Christ. A lot of the authorities are persecuting and are killing and are throwing Christians in jail. And so it's not to say that they are good. It's not to say that everything they do is good necessarily. It's not to say that these are all good people in these places. It's saying that they are the ones, for better or for worse, who God has put in place. He's put them in place for our good. And sometimes even if they do bad things, it's like Romans says, that is still working for our good because God is always working for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Not everything is good. Some things are pure evil. All things work together for good. Sometimes, as we see in this passage that we read earlier from Acts chapter 8, uh, corrupt and evil authorities ended up being the thing that launched the church into a whole new level of growth and evangelism. So it wasn't good. The persecution wasn't good, but it worked for the good of the church. And if we have a view that says, well, I should only like things that feel good all the time, and that's the only time I should ever honor the authorities, that's not what Paul is suggesting. God has put them in place. He has not put you in place. He has not put me in place. If my opinion was crucial to how Ontario was going to navigate through COVID, then I would be the premier. But I'm not, Sarah. I pastor here at Meadowbrook Church. And so that's not to say our authorities are above question. It's not to say that uh, we don't hold them to account. It's not to say that we don't uh, just, you know, it's not to say we automatically just go along with things. And there will be times when we resist, which we'll get to in a moment. But another verse along these lines, Titus 3, uh, 1 and 2, a couple of verses. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. No slander. And that suggests in context not even slandering the rulers and authorities. Uh, some of you will be in trouble when you meet Jesus because of your Facebook pages. No slander. You don't have to agree, but we don't slander. We don't dishonor. And we are called to be gentle always. And we can disagree gently. And we can disagree with our government gently. And we can be respectable and we can be considerate. And if you want a master class in this, go and read King David and how he responds to Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. Saul is killing the priests of the Lord. Saul is consulting witches for legal advice. David never crosses the line into dishonor. And David has no problem saying, Saul, I think you're out of line. He has no problem speaking truth to power. But look at the way that David speaks the truth to power. It is with reverence. It is with the acknowledgement that, Saul, you are God's anointed one. You are the one that God has made king. David knew he was going to be king, but he wasn't king yet. So he says, as long as Saul is king, I won't dishonor him. He doesn't agree with him and, again, has no problem holding him to account and calling him out. But he does so with such honor with such reverence. And so we are called to be subject as to our rulers and authorities. One more, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so 
we are called to honor our government. And there are going to be times where we would resist, and we'll get to that next. But as a default, our call is submission. That's our default. And there may be good reasons to go another way. But we are called to honor them. They are the ones that God has put in place. And there's been a lot of conversation about, we, do we submit to God or do we submit to man? But what these verses are telling us is those two things are not divorced from each other. One of the ways in which we submit to God is by submitting to the authorities that he has put in place. That's one of the ways that we submit to him. And so we don't divorce those two things from each other. And I, I have really actually grown to appreciate a lot a number of conversations I have had with those of you uh, who are Mennonite by background, who are Mennonite uh, by your ethnicity. And, you know, for Mennonites, for Anabaptists, we are a Mennonite brethren church. Uh, authorities have been trying to kill you for 500 years, like legitimately, starting in Europe and moving through Russia, and there's been persecution. And so some of you have said to me, the Mennonite blood in my veins says I shouldn't be trusting the government right now. Uh, there has not always been a great track record there. And so I get it, and I, I appreciate those of you who have shared that view with me, and that was honestly not something that I was considering, that for a, a great chunk of people in our church, you have stories from your ancestors of what happens when the government turns against the Mennonites, turns against the Anabaptists, and that is real, that is legitimate. Uh, I would also add that, you know, you have to judge every government based on its own merit. You don't just automatically assume that this Canadian government is going to be exactly like the Russians unless they give you reason to believe, like actual evidence that they are in that place. But I appreciate the struggle. I appreciate that there is that in the heritage of many people in our church. But at the same time... Uh, when we talk about submission, when we talk about these are the Lord's people, when we talk about God put them there for our good, uh, when it talks about we are to, to follow after them, um, there are going to be exceptions, but the conditions are not there of, well, I'll do it when it's my preferred political party in power, or I'll do it as long as I 100% agree with it, or I'll do it uh, as long as it, it lines up with the way I think a government should be acting. Those conditions just aren't there. And one of the downsides of democracy, for all of the wonderful blessings of democracy, democracy sows a lot of dishonor towards our leaders, I find. Honor the emperor, or the president, or the prime minister, or the premier, or the mayor, or whoever. Honor them. And democracy, it starts with even how they talk to each other. The different political parties are constantly slandering and constantly tearing down. Uh, we as Christ followers are called to something else. There is a way to disagree with honor. There is a way to still be reverent to the position that God has put someone in and still speak the truth to power. There is a way to do it without name-calling, without assigning character qualities that may or may not be true. There is a way to do that. So as we look at those verses then, what about, for those of you who right away started to saying, well, what about the verse that says we obey God and not man? What about the verse that says that we have to listen to God and not to humans? That question has come up. And, and most of our church, I think, has said we understand why we're closing down right now. That makes sense. But what about, like, when would we? take a stand? When would we push back? When might we? What might that look like? And, and it's hard to answer that in terms of hypotheticals, but we know that ultimately our call is to submit ourselves to God. And one of the ways we do that is through the authorities, but what happens when God and the authorities are out of sync with each other? When the word of God is not lining up with what authorities might be telling us to do? James 4, 7 makes clear we submit ourselves ultimately to God. Our life as Christ followers is to actually follow Christ. And so we get two examples in the book of Acts where they respectfully say we're not going to listen to the authorities. One of them is Acts chapter 4 verse 18 to 20. The religious leaders called Peter and John in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's so good. So stop talking about Jesus respectfully, no thank you. We're going to keep doing what he has told us to do. That's one. Second one comes in the next chapter, Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 29. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin, the religious council, to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And for some, that is the statement that is being nailed to the wall. Like, we have to obey God rather than humans. 
And so at what point then, if context matters, if everything uh, lives in a context that we have to wrestle through as we're discerning God's word, what do we do then? Because we were just told multiple times, do what you're told, listen to the government, and yet we have the apostles here when the authorities come along saying, we're not going to listen to you right now. We're going to obey God rather than you. We believe in all of God's word being inspired by the same Holy Spirit, so these are not contradictory to each other. We have to hold these truths in tension somehow. And the answer, I think, needs to be that just context does matter. The context of when we are obedient as our default and when we might say, uh, no, we are not going to do, do that, the context is important. So under what circumstances might we resist the authorities? Well, in context, first of all, when we're ordered not to talk about Jesus and the gospel, Right? That's, that's the direct context of those two passages. They're not told they can't gather. They're told you can't talk about Jesus. You cannot share the gospel. You need to stop teaching in his name. And so the day that that happens will be the day that we say, no, thank you, with respect and honor. We are going to keep teaching about Jesus. I think you can also conclude when we're given orders concerning what we're teaching. I think that's maybe where we'll be fighting battles in Canada down the road, is that uh, the, when they're telling them you can't teach in Jesus' name. You can't teach about him. And the day the authorities say you're not allowed to teach this or you're not allowed to teach that or you're not allowed to call this sin or you're not allowed to, to promote that worldview that is in the Bible, the day that that happens will be the day that we say respectfully, no thank you. We are going to teach what the word of God says. And then the last one, when we're ordered to disobey God's word, and that's the one that we're all uh, sort of arguing about right now amongst churches. When we're ordered to disobey God's word, Jesus had told them, go and make disciples. And so the authorities come and say, stop trying to make disciples. And they say, we are going to continue to make disciples when we're ordered to disobey God's word. And so that becomes the big question right now because aren't we commanded by God to gather together? Doesn't God's word say gather together? That we are to come together for worship, that the community is important. And if the word of God says we should gather together, and if the authorities are saying you can't gather together, is that reasonable grounds to say, no, we're going to defy the authorities and we are going to gather together anyway? And so there are a few verses that talk about why we should gather together. Here's the one getting the most attention, I would say, right now. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So when Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, don't give up meeting together, and the government says, for a little while, we need you to give up meeting together, is that an appropriate moment to say, sorry, government, we are going to do what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us to do? Now, we have always allowed for reasonable exceptions to this scripture. If someone is sick, we say don't come, right? If someone's not feeling well, don't gather at church today. We've had people in our church go through cancer treatments, and as they go through cancer treatments, the chemo brings their immunity down, and we say, of course you're not coming to church for a couple of months. It's not safe for you to be there, so stay home until you get better. We have shut-ins who just can't physically get out and aren't able to physically do that, and we have grace for them. Uh, sometimes there'll be a, a pregnant lady who'll say, I'm just tired of everyone touching my belly. I'm nine months pregnant, and everyone, every time I come to church, they say, you're still here? It's like, yes, I'm still here. So I'm going to stay home for a couple of weeks. And we say, of course, stay home for a couple of weeks. Then you have the baby and you're sore for a while and you're not ready to bring the baby to the nursery yet. And we say, of course. So we have always had some reasonable exceptions to this. And this verse seems to be a correction that some people just out of habit were not gathering together. Right? Some were just getting out of the habit of coming to church. So let's not give that up, as some are in the habit of doing. But we, we want to gather together. And there's nothing in the passage that gives us any clues about, but what about during a pandemic? Right? There's nothing that says, give up meeting together, even in the middle of a contagious illness. There's nothing in the passage that says, don't give up meeting together, uh, and it has to be in hundreds of people on a Sunday morning. There's lots of ways we can gather together. There's lots of ways, even with our rules right now, we can gather together in groups of 10, assuming that we're doing it safely and we're following the protocols. And so, uh, so it's hard to hang our hats for me entirely on this one verse, but it does remind us of how important 
our community is. And there's a lot of talk about the one another's in the New Testament. And depending on your version and how things are phrased, there's somewhere between 30 and 50 one another's where we're told to love one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, one another, one another, one another. And they all point to this picture of what the church is supposed to be, that we are supposed to be a community. And we've done a series on the book of Acts that we called Ecclesia. It's where we get the word ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word that commonly gets translated as church. And if you remember the series, and you all do because you hold to my teaching so strongly, the word ecclesia literally means the gathering, the assembly, the called out group. And so how can we do that if we can't gather on a Sunday morning? How do we love one another? How do we encourage one another? How do we join our voices together and build up one another's faith as we worship together? How can we fulfill the biblical command to call, to, to gather together and to call ourselves a, a family if we can't gather as a family? And it was really encouraging when we came through the first lockdown and it was four months that we didn't gather together. And then when we started gathering together again, it was obviously different. It was not our favorite way of doing it. And yet, at the same time, hearing people say over and over again, oh, it was good to be back. It was good to hear the voices. It was good to see the faces. It was good to be reminded of why Sunday mornings are so important. It was so good to have that reminder. And surely, in many ways, one of the things 2020 has done for us is realize we take a lot of things for granted. Uh, we're not as grateful as we should be for what we have. And sometimes you don't realize that until something's gone for a little while. And so, so we are called to community. We are called together. Uh, and when we went online for a few months and all of our meetings were happening, on Zoom, and we were praying on Zoom, and we were meeting with people on the phone, and all of those things. We had Sunday morning worship online. Uh, Xavier and his team did such a great job. Our worship team did such a great job of keeping worship going for us. A lady in our church said to me, uh, this is a beautiful band-aid. Like, it's not the best way to do church, but it's really, it's a beautiful temporary measure. It's a beautiful band-aid. And we miss Sunday mornings. Like that very first Sunday morning in December when we did our baptism Sunday, that was our first one where everybody wasn't here. Uh, it was hard. It was hard to look out and not see all your faces. It was hard to, to not hear all the voices singing today. Again, it's not our favorite way to do this. And yet, if, if church entirely falls apart because we can't do Sunday mornings for a little while, then honestly, we're not much of a church. Because there's a lot of ways to do one another. There's a lot of ways to figure this out. And, and I don't like church online as, a, as an every week thing either. I don't like Zoom calls. I don't like all those things. It's not our favorite, but it's temporary and it's what we have. I have not lived near my family in 16 years. Uh, I'm from the Toronto area. My parents are still up there. My brother and sister-in-law and, and now niece and nephew are up there. Um, we don't see them as much as most of you get to see your families. And so for 16 years, I have not lived near them. And obviously, there is nothing as good as giving my mom a hug and giving my dad a hug and giving my nephew and niece a hug. There is nothing like that. Obviously, that's the best possible way to be in relationship. But you know what? For 16 years, we've managed to stay really close through email, through FaceTime, through texting, through phone calls. It's not ideal. It's what we got. And we have found a way to make it work. And so if I can still love my parents and my brother and my sister-in-law and my niece and nephew and make that work for 16 years, we're going to be okay through a few months of this as we find some different ways to connect and a few different ways to do church along the way. Right before Christmas, I met with a group uh, that I meet with. A few guys get together. So we met here at the church. And, and interestingly, one of them called that morning and said, uh, we're just getting together for some prayer and encouragement time. And he said, you know what? I've got a cold today. Uh, I can't come. I shouldn't come just out of overabundance of caution. I said, yes, of course, we'll miss you. He said, can I call in and be on speakerphone? And I said, yeah, of course you can do that. And so we had a phone out and he was on speakerphone that night. It was me and two other guys in the room. Turns out the guy who was sick did have COVID, uh, and we didn't find that out until after. But uh, again, there's little things we can do to help each other out right now, right? Because I wouldn't be that worried about catching it necessarily and, and even getting it from him. But uh, that would have been a real bummer on just Christmas time. We would have had to stay home and get a test and have to quarantine and not go to work. We wouldn't have been able to do the baptism Sunday that day. Like, there just would have been a lot if he had ended up coming in that day. So it was a very gracious and loving thing to stay home when we're not feeling well right now. He thought it was just a head cold. He said it wasn't a particularly bad one, but 
uh, turns out that that was not the case. Thankfully, he and his family are all doing much better now. So as we are in this meeting, he's on speakerphone. It's not the best, but it's still great. He's still participating. We're hearing his voice. He's praying. He's participating in with us. And I've got me and two other guys in the room. And it wasn't a Sunday morning gathering. And I love worship. And so that's a big part of Sunday for me. Uh, I love seeing the people together. I, again, I love hearing the voices unite. I love being able to connect with a lot of people all at once. This was none of those things. This was a few people sitting down. How's it going? What do we pray for for you right now? What are you struggling with? Leaning on one another. But I left that meeting and went home that night, and I went, well, that was church. That was church. It wasn't a Sunday morning gathering. That was church. We loved one another. We prayed for one another. We bore one another's burdens. We encouraged one another. It was awesome. And it wasn't everything that a Sunday morning was, but it was awesome. And again, we are living in a season right now where we are allowed to meet in groups of 10 for religious purposes. We can do a lot there for those of you who are comfortable. And in the weeks to come, we're going to figure out how do we use that to our advantage? How can we be a community in groups of 10 for a little while? How can we do the one another's and fulfill that in that way? And if you're not able to do that, again, take a lesson from my family. You can do a lot of one anothering through Zoom, through FaceTime, through the phone, you can. It's not ideal, but for a season, you can do it. And so there's a lot that we can pull off and that we can pull together. Almost done. I've been talking for a while. Another question that's coming up, what if this is a slippery slope? Right, if we don't take a stand on this, who's to say we'll take a stand later if something more serious comes up? What if this is just a way that they're testing to see? I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy type stuff floating around right now. Um, and my answer to that, slippery slope is a pretty terrible argument. Uh, when I was in seminary, we weren't allowed to use them. You weren't allowed to say, like, well, if this happens, then this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. If I wrote that in a paper, the prof would circle it in red and say, slippery slope. And it's just considered a, an unintellectual, fear-driven argument. Because anything could be something, right? Like, anything could be, but is there any evidence that it actually is? Wes and Lee are here in the room, and, oh, I saw a look in between them. Maybe, maybe they're getting divorced. It's like, well, that's a slippery slope argument, but maybe it was nothing, right? And so we talked in the fall. We make our decisions based on a careful searching of evidence. So do we have a reason to believe that the government is out to get churches right now? No, we don't. The government's given us extra privileges. In the first lockdown, they let us reopen again. So even in just the, the context of this particular pandemic, they've done pretty well by Christians. I don't think we can complain compared to what other organizations and businesses have had to go through. And every relationship I have in my life uh, works on an understanding that you're not going to fight every single battle. You don't have to go to every fight that you're invited to. You don't have to take a stand on every hill. Ben and Sarah are also in the room. They've just been married this last year, and we go through premarital counseling stuff. And one of the things I say to every couple is, you're going to not fight a lot. Like, you're going to choose to not fight. You're going to choose to let something go. Because, I mean, if you want to in a marriage, you could probably all fight 24-7. There's enough that we do that annoys each other if you wanted to. But you're going to choose the hills that you're going to die on. You're going to choose the things that are important. And so, you know, in my marriage, I, I don't ever go like, well, you know, if I don't call Sarah out on this and take a stand on this, what am I going to do if she has an affair one day? It's like, well, those are different things, right? And, and we're all grown up enough to say that there are hills that we're willing to die on and there are hills that we're not willing to die on. And so the thing about this this particular season is we have no reason yet to believe that we're not going to get our opening back as soon as we move back into red zone, whenever that is. We have no reason to believe otherwise. They have treated us well thus far. And so we have no reason to believe that it's not going to go back. And I'm sure we'll have to be 30% for a while and probably do mass for a while. But we have no reason to believe that that's not going to be any different. So why do we want to die on a hill that we're probably going to get back for free? in another month or two months or three months? Why would we want to spend tens of thousands of dollars? Why would we want to get people with criminal records? Like, why would we want to die on a hill that I imagine we're going to get back? And if we don't get it back, then we'll make a decision then on what's going to happen there. But we all have to, to do that in our lives, that there are things to, to fight for, there are things that are not. We don't feel like this is a season to fight for right now. Lastly, and most important point, isn't the church essential? And this is a question that is coming up a lot. 
Why is the church not considered essential? And, and of course, we know it's essential. We know what the gospel is. We know what Jesus is. We know how he has changed our lives. We know it's a matter of life and death. We know how crucial the ch church is. Again, I can't expect Christ followers to know that. I can't expect them to understand that. But we know that the church is absolutely essential. Isn't the church essential? Yes, of course it is. It is, in fact, so essential that it could never be confined to just one hour on a Sunday morning. Church is not just somewhere we go. Church is something that we are. We come here to get refilled. We come here to connect. We come here to get built up so that we can go be the church 24-7. And no one is stopping us from doing that. No one is telling us we can't talk about Jesus. No one is talking us we can't love our neighbor. If your neighbor is in need right now, you need to go there. You need to go. And even if that means you have to break the social rule to go into someone's house, go into their house. Do it safely. But if someone needs something, when Martin Luther is writing about plague in the 1500s, he says, if my neighbor has the plague, even if we are all supposed to be apart, I'm going to go and minister to my neighbor who has the plague. I am going to fulfill my call to love my neighbor in that way. The church is essential. The church is such a big part of what could make this season easier for people and where there's all this conversation about mental health concerns and emotional health concerns and all of those things. And if you have people in your life where you're going, I'm worried about where they're going to be at emotionally or I'm worried about how they're going to get through this, why do you think you're there? You who are filled with the Spirit of God, you who are filled with the Word of God, you who are filled with the Gospel of God, there's not one preacher at Meadowbrook Church on Sunday mornings. There are hundreds of us. Every time we talk about Jesus with someone, we are preaching. And of course, we just grieve not being together now. We do understand there is something that happens when we come together, but we are the church all the time. Not just when we gather in a room on a Sunday morning. We are the church all the time. We have the Spirit in us all the time. I'm not the only preacher who is here. What's interesting, and we're going to wrap up here, about our original story in the Book of Acts Church when they started to scatter, is that at that point, the church was actually not doing what they were supposed to be doing. So Jesus had said before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, this is verse 4 and 5 and then verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So don't you dare leave Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. You cannot be the church without the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit comes, then you're going to go and be my witnesses everywhere. And by the time we reach Acts chapter 8, the church has not left Jerusalem. They're just having a fun Holy Ghost time, and God's doing great things, and they're still there in Jerusalem. And so they are not doing what actually they were supposed to be doing. And I'm not saying that God let it all happen in order to make this happen, but when Stephen dies and the persecution happens, the first thing the passage says is they start to spread out into Judea and Samaria. They start to go where he had told them to go. And for the first time, the gospel leaves Jerusalem and starts to spread all over the world. In a difficult time, when their way of doing church was taken away, God used the circumstances to launch the church into a whole new way of doing things. He used it to launch them into mission. And they didn't fight about their rights, and they didn't say, we want to worship in a certain way, and we're going to stay, and we're going to, to just stand up here. Uh, they went, and God did incredible things through them. God used the circumstance to push them into mission. And if we are looking, and if we are ready, he will do that for us as well. My whole life, I grew up in church. I didn't get saved till I was 18, but I grew up in church, and then I've, I've never left it since I got saved, and I've been in ministry now for almost 20 years. And in all of that time, I've heard this approximately a bazillion times. I've heard it from preachers. I've heard it at conferences, podcasts. Books have been written over and over and over again. Church is not just about Sunday mornings. We got to get outside these four walls. How many times have we heard that? We got to get outside these four walls. Church is not just about Sunday mornings. We got to get outside these four walls. There's a community out there that is lost and that is hurting. They need what we have in here. And if they're not coming in here, then we need to go out there to where they are. And we need to share with them the hope that we have. We need to introduce them to the Jesus 
Jesus that we know. And if we're concerned in this season about this person's mental health or that person's physical need, why do you think you're there? Go and meet that need in the name of Jesus. We aren't just people who go to church. We got to get outside these four walls. Guys, what if this season is that? What if this is a way in which God is saying, all right, time to get outside these four walls. There's been so many conversations about, well, if the church isn't meeting on Sundays, how are the lost going to hear the gospel? And I go, it's easy. A bunch of you have been sharing YouTube links like crazy. They can still hear the gospel. And also, let's not pretend. Okay, fair's fair. Of course we're excited for the lost to hear the gospel on Sunday mornings. Let's not pretend like we have all been dragging our lost friends and family like crazy into the services week after week. Let's not pretend like that was crazy widespread. It happens from time to time. But let's not pretend like that was really that important to us up until now. And maybe this is one of those moments where we go, whew, that was actually more important than we realized. Maybe we'll do better moving forward. But in a world that's fearful right now in some corners, in a world that's very angry right now in some quarters, in a world that's very cynical, in a world that's very hopeless, in a world that's very whatever, like you're there for a reason. You're there. And I'm actually excited to figure out how we're going to do this. How are we going to do the one another's as a church family? How are we going to be in community? We've got this limit of 10. I like a challenge. Let's figure this out. How are we going to do this together? And how are we going to use this to God's glory? How are we going to use this to be the church? Bella read us the scripture this morning. Come on up, worship team. We'll wrap up here. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19. Thanks, Bella, for reading today. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. We called the message when church doors temporarily close. It's not really a great title because we're not really closed. Like we are, we are still doing what we're doing. We are still proclaiming the gospel. We are still worshiping. We are still going to increasingly figure out ways to do this. The church isn't shut down. The only way the church shuts down is if we personally shut down and decide we're not doing anything because we are the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ at Meadowbrook. So this isn't a time to detach. This is a time to wake up. And I refuse to navigate 2021 with grumbling and complaining. I think we all did lots of that in 2020. We're going to navigate through this season with worship and with gratitude and with some excitement to say, hey, if God wanted us open right now on Sunday mornings, we'd be open. The fact that we're not suggests that we just got to figure out a new way to do this for a little while. This is a season. It is not permanent, but there are things I think that we are going to learn that can be permanent, that can be transformative as we lean into the fullness of everything that he has for us. And so I have a lot of peace about where we're at right now, and, and I'm actually a little excited. Uh, not that we have to go through some hardship for a little while longer, but I'm just excited for what God is doing, and I'm excited for what we're going to learn, and how we are going to be the church outside the four walls, and with lessons that I trust are going to last. There is so much to be grateful for. We're alive. We're breathing. He loves us. He died for us. He rose for us. He is coming again for us. And his grace is sufficient for us. He's making a way in the wilderness for Meadowbrook Church. He is making streams in the wasteland. There is refreshing by his spirit and by his word that is available to all of us all of the time, 24-7. He is with us always until the very end of the age. And so we are going to close now with some worship as we rightly put aside everything else right now, even some of the things we've talked about that might be worrisome or concerning, and we're going to fix our eyes on him and be grateful for who he is and all that he is doing.